Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week by David Moser, Academic Director of the CET Program here in Beijing. How are you on this crisp and lovely fall afternoon? Oh, feeling groovy, Kaiser, because if I may be anachronistic. 29 was the, 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 the PM 2.5 reading as we had coffee earlier. Yeah. Uh, lovely. The same age as the woman sitting next to us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Uh, anyway, uh, I have a question for you, David. If you had to come up with a mission statement for this little podcast of ours, for the Cynical Podcast, what, what, what would you, what would you, how would you encapsulate it? Hmm. Well, China is a very complex place, right? Uh, so I suppose we try to provide uh, some framing for certain events so that people can have a better understanding. Maybe point focus in on certain things that might be useful. But I, I think maybe your presence here. Uh, uh, makes its function more to sort of go against some prevailing narratives that we see. Sure, yeah. I mean, I definitely want to make at least people aware of the narratives that are in place. I mean, both Chinese narratives and, and uh, you know, those that dominate in mostly English-speaking countries right. where so many yes, of our right. listeners are. Some which may be uh, implicit. Right. Uh, yeah. so I think the, the, the length and the format and the fairly kind of focused focus of the show, focused, the narrow focus of the of the show allow for unpacking of more complicated issues. Yeah, so right. I mean, maybe it's like our mission statement is to move listeners toward a, a both broader and deeper understanding of China and looking not only at events as they unfold, but also the historical and cultural context out of which they grow, right? Right. So... With that in mind, I think uh, we're delighted to welcome to the show today Foka Obama, who is a veteran Dutch journalist with their Volkskrant, who uh, is a very popular newspaper in the Netherlands. Uh, he's the author of the brand new book, China and the West, Hope and Fear in the Age of Asia, which I think was undertaken very much in the spirit of this podcast, uh, many of the same, same goals. So Foka, welcome to Seneca and congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. So, would you agree? This is this is the spirit of in, in which the book was undertaken. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, the origins of the book uh, are in be- go back to two thousand and eight mm-hmm. when I first visited China, and I was just impressed by the dynamism and the energy of the place, and um, it compared uh, positively uh, with um, my own country and Europe in general, where the uh, credit crisis just had started and uh, pessimism was uh, uh, largely spread and also very negative attitude towards China. Um, You know, China was going to take over Europe and uh, was going to dominate the world and it would be a very bad thing. And I thought, you know, we we need a sort of 
cool down and and think uh, s straightforwardly about you know what what is exactly the impact of China, the rise of China, which is of course the the main event of this uh, century, uh, on our part of the world. And so I tried uh, a balanced approach in this book, and in that sense, it's. Uh, it's it's like uh, your show. Oh, great. Um, I, I have to admit that uh, I don't read any languages besides English and Chinese, so I don't really think that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, in a position to speak on what the, the narratives are that dominate European coverage. I don't read German or, or French or Italian or Spanish or any, or, or, or for that matter, Dutch, of course. Uh, I mean, Google Translate only takes you so far. Um, what, how would you characterize? You said you know they're they're coming for us. They're uh, they're they're going to to uh, you know deprive us of economic opportunities. What are, what are some of the other narratives that you think dominate in discussions in 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 European media? Well, I, I think uh, underlying most stories is is a, a sense of fear for China, and uh, I mean it goes back to this this old yellow peril uh, view of China, you know, this 1.3 billion people and uh, when they are moving towards us, you know, what's going to happen to us? Um, and and you see that in every story, for instance, on, on takeovers, uh, you know, there has to be only one single Chinese businessman taking over a Dutch uh, soccer club and then uh, everybody starts uh, to get a little uh, shaky about <laughs> it. And uh, it's, it's completely exaggerated, you know, if there's activity of uh, China in uh, the Rotterdam uh, harbor, then, then it's the same thing. Or if uh, Chinese take over French uh, wine chateaus, you know. Yeah, you, which is a, a large part of your book is devoted to that, that you reported out of Bordeaux, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it's a nice place to be, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, as a reporter, uh, it's kind of interesting that you, you chose this, this stance or this focus for the book because... It, it seems to me a lot of reporters, uh, some of the ones that we might go against their prevailing narratives here on the show, uh, are more engaged in sort of producing articles that go with the narrative because that's how they get published and that makes their editors happy. Yeah. But you you in the book, and you seem to be expressing a feeling that you, you felt pushback against what you, the, another narrative you were trying to pr present in the Dutch press, right? Yes, well, the, the thing is, I, I had this opportunity of having a sabbatical year and then you have the also the opportunity to stand back a little from what you're doing in day daily day, life. Yeah, right. And and so I could see, you know, the way Western media were behaving. Uh, and I have to uh, emphasize, it's not only against uh, China. This, this ah. You know, it's looking for, f for problems and for conflicts, which is general, I think, to uh, Western media. And, uh, I mean, to have critical journalism is, of course, very important, but... Uh, for a change, I also was interested in being uh, more constructive, and um, uh, so that, that's why I also started to criticize my own uh, fellow journalists. Mm -hmm. mm. Can I ask one other question? Of course. About in the, since I assume, I always assume that the European discourse is pretty much the same as the Anglophone discourse, but maybe maybe not. One phenomenon that we have that we talk a lot, a lot about are are these division into two two parties or two camps of what we call dragon slayers and panda huggers. And we have these certain authors that we could list who would fall into one or the other category. Yeah. And it's also in academia because you could list the same sort of professors who speak on all the podcasts and things. Uh, I won't name names right now, but do you have the same phenomenon there in academia as well as journalism? Or? Yes, I think you, you can make that uh, distinction. And uh, while my effort is 
trying not to be in one of the, these right. categories and and stay uh, as Studied objective neutral, yeah. uh, as as uh, much as possible. Uh, I have to admit, nowadays I'm interviewed uh, because of my book by Chinese journalists, and I'm giving sour and sweet commands on both China and the West. And it, they, they like sweet and sour yeah, here. I was going to say yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, but th- they they tend A to tasty cuisine. They they tend to take uh, the, the the sweet remarks on China and the sour remarks on the West, and that is then you don't get the whole picture. So. It's always a danger, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, you're gonna it's be, you're gonna, yeah. You, anything that you say is going to be cherry picked by the Chinese media, and, and they'll, yeah, they'll be but very I mean, that, that, that's that's of course something we in the West do as well. I mean, uh, that that's not really different. The difference is, of course, that behind the Chinese journalist, there is the Chinese state. Right. Now, you use this word, this phrase, the West, uh, to designate presumably a a set of nations that have a shared set of political or maybe economic norms. And uh, it's something that I I very studiedly avoid using. I I tend not to deploy the word the West or the phrase the West. Uh, You don't experience any kind of pushback against this idea that that there is a West. I mean, you know, you you, you try using it uh, sometime in a group of of academics or in a group of journalists. If you talk about the Western media, the, the hackles are immediately up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's a difficult argument. I mean, can you talk about China then, you know, because well, China, China, I mean, China, China is a definable nation state. I yes, mean, okay, but and, and can you talk about Europe? Because Europe is also, you know, we are 29 nations and right. it's, it's very divided. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, in fact, it, the, the, the book originally was called uh, China and Europe. Mm. Um, but my English publisher, they didn't like very much Europe in the title of the book uh-huh. uh, for commercial reasons. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it has been brought into China and the West. Okay. And, and uh, th- that's the main reason I speak of the West. Okay. I, th- I think also uh, some an, a journalist like Foka is to be forgiven because the, the, this is a category the Chinese themselves <laughs> tend to deal with them much more than even we do. Right, and Chinese that's usually and when you encounter the the, the, the hackle raised exactly. Thing, right, and as we mentioned over lunch, some Chinese even consider Jap- Japan to be part of the West. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a, yeah, there's an argument to be made for that. It yeah. is, after all, a liberal democratic, uh, you know, uh, uh, capitalist state. Uh, but let's. Um, I, w- I want to understand better who the reading, uh, the intended reading audience of this is. Who do you imagine is going to see this book and 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 want to buy it? Yeah, well, it's it's not meant for specialists. Right. Of, first of all, it's the general public. It's it's basically the kind of public I'm used to write f- writing for this this newspaper. You have it in Dutch as well. Oh, yes, there is a 2013 edition which is called China and Europe. Okay, and, oh, and, and okay. so I see. so. Um, it's it's a very broad public. Everybody who's asking the question, you know, what does this rise of China mean uh, for us? Mm-hmm. And and, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's also interesting for Chinese people because it gives you an idea of how we in the West or Europe. Think Let's go ahead and use the West for now. I mean, <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we decided that that's uh, we're going to be comfortable. Yeah, I mean, you set out to do something. I think that's just very ambitious and, and very praiseworthy. Uh, you're not just trying to build a more nuanced understanding of, of, of China realities here on the ground, but also you want to urge readers toward uh, a better awareness of their own prejudices, their own biases, what you call 
pride and prejudice in the book, right? Which I think is a, an interesting use of the phrase. So the whole first chapter that you talk about, um, reckoning with your own prejudices, mm-hmm. your own you know pride in your European systems, the institutions, and, and the values you have as a Western European. Um, you, you also talk about a kind of sudden epiphany that you have while attending an otherwise very boring conference in Brussels, and yet, yet, yet another one of these, when a cranky Chinese professor just starts in on a rant. Was that real? I mean, was that a narrative device? Or was that a real awakening moment for you? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that that was a real awakening moment, and it, I remember that that moment very uh, um, vividly, clearly, <laughs> vividly, because um, everybody watching him, and it, it was a mixture of of uh, European uh, and and Chinese specialists. They they were a bit confused because he was so uh, outspoken yeah. uh, and negative on Europe. Which is, of course, well, as we felt it, an un-Chinese <coughs> way of behaving, mm-hmm. which is always diplomatic and polite and, you know, uh, hoping for mutual understanding and win-win situations, etc. And he was completely against that. So uh, so uh, for me, as a beginner in, in, in China knowledge, it was quite astonishing to see someone so outspoken and negative about uh, Europe. So and this was in what year was this? What year was this? This this was uh, 2009 or something. Okay, like that. I mean because you know it's interesting. I think a lot of people would say that there was a a major change in the year 2008. That mm-hmm. 2008 really marked the watershed, <clears throat> and there was this you know very kind of heavily freighted symbolic moment. It, you know the Beijing Olympics happened. You know they opened on August 8th. They, they and then just literally three weeks after the closing of, of the closing ceremony of the Beijing Games. It was the Lehman Brothers collapse. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And so uh, these were two kind of, you know, it was yeah. a, a, a passing of the torch maybe in, in the minds of some people. And that you, you, you suddenly heard a lot more of that kind of swagger, uh, that, that uh, assertiveness, that almost, you know, uh, pugnaciousness coming, coming out of China. Would you, would you agree that that was kind of a, an inflection point? I absolutely agree. And I think at that point, uh, Chinese authorities uh, really thought – you know, we we are the future, and and uh, look at uh, the West; uh, they are going down the drain. And uh, I mean, I have to be honest: we in the West thought the same. You know, we we thought, that, you know, with the credit crisis. I mean, we it was so unpredictable what would happen. So uh, we somehow lost our confidence uh, then. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. uh, events afterwards, you know, make clear that the picture is not that uh, black and white. Right. Of course not. Uh, it seems to me, and the larger, even pre nineteen uh, two thousand and eight, the 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 arc of this has been from China from be, China thinking of itself as as a country or a civilization state or whatever that was joining the geopolitical order and becoming a part of it and a, and a an equal or even you know superior player to a very different uh, sort of mentality that we have now under Xi Jinping, which is. We're not just joining the, the geopolitical order. We are creating our own new geopolitical order. You know, yes. we're creating a, you know, one belt, one road. We're, we're we're bypassing the geopolitical order and making forging a new model. You know, this, this this idea of a new model. Do you see that as part of the you know, what, it's at least a sub subtext for the Chinese. Uh, focus of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's very interesting. We in the West have been asking for a responsible stakeholder all the time and the, right. a more active uh, attitude of China. So now we get it, and <laughs> uh, of course, um, w- we are you know not sure whether this is what we asked for. And 
<coughs> I think AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, is a very interesting example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we've done a, a show on that. It's uh, yeah, where 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 um, uh, I think China did a, diplomatically a very interesting uh, move, and the U.S. Uh, failed to understand uh, the the attractiveness of the Chinese proposition. Um, at the same time, you should not exaggerate the importance of the AIIB. I mean, geopolitically, there is also, of course, uh, the Pacific. And I think in that issue, China is not moving so smartly as uh, they did on AIIB. Mm-hmm. Uh, much of your book is, is concerned with these kind of dueling senses of superiority, mm-hmm. right? That's that's a, a theme that, that threads through through uh, of, two, of two civilizations, really, um, each kind of supposing a kind of exceptionalism for itself. Uh, so there's this young friend of mine here, a guy named Greg Blandino. Uh, he works for an, on an internet company here, and uh, he once commented, and I thought it was really, really kind of you know, preternaturally wise to say that he was a- answering a question on Quora about, you know, which culture is more you know, has a greater sense of superiority. And he, he said that, you know, the U.S. and China are both really big on, on exceptionalism. I mean, he wasn't talking about the West. He was talking about the United States in particular, uh, but of, of very different kinds of exceptionalism. American exceptionalism claims that its values are universal, that it should be the norm and the form for the entirety of the world. While China's exceptionalism is rooted in a very different belief, one that's perhaps equally arrogant, that China's culture, China's values are unique, are inimitable. And unexportable. And, and not exportable, right? Yeah. I mean, what do you think of this idea? I mean, is this something that you, you encountered that might resonate with you? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I agree. And, and uh, the U.S. is, is uh, absolutely convinced of, its, of, of, of the values. And, of course, me as a European, I share these values uh, as well. But uh, the U.S. is just sending out this signal all the time that this is the case and and uh, we, we are less in that habit Europeans uh, you Europeans we, we, are less, yes, yeah, yeah. in Europe um, and and uh, China I think the interesting thing is it's it's, it's a civilization on its own but um, what comes with this feeling of superiority is also a feeling of inferiority yeah you, you talk about that a lot also I mean the, I, I remember in, in particular you were talking about somebody who's studying Chinese communities in Europe and says that they were very much characterized by this simultaneous superiority complex and inferiority complex. Right? Exactly, exactly. And I, I think if you have to understand the, the Chinese mindset, I mean, these two notions have come into play. And, and uh, you see that, that this inferiority complex, which is, of course, driven by the, the century of humili- humiliation in the 19th century, um, is, is uh, very much there. And it also makes, you know, for a kind of feeling of revenge and wanting to do right. better. It's our turn again, right? Yeah, this, this time it's our turn, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the, what are the, the senses of superiority in those communities he was talking about? You know, the, the work ethic, for example. They, Absolutely. They, they, right. um, this is something I remember, you know, our, our, our co-host Jeremy, who unfortunately couldn't join us right now, was, um, he's always talking about how, uh, <laughs> you know, he's, he's sort of shocked at, at going to Europe and businesses that close at 5 p.m. Uh, or that close on weekends or on, you know, in, in Southern Europe, especially on every goddamn feast day for the, <laughs> the, 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 the Catholic Church has. And, yeah. and the, you can't, you can't, how can they compete 
you, know, you go to China and banks are open on weekends and business many businesses are 24 hours yeah. and and nobody would think of them yeah it's but but what what i would like to point out then is that the w when you look at the hour productivity so the productivity per worked hour in european countries is far higher, far higher yes than absolutely. in china so maybe china should come a bit more Oh, I agree. Uh, to the European as uh, a working way of stiff, I absolutely <laughs> agree. More <laughs> vacation time, more work-life balance. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other, another theme that that's, that's uh, I think uh, an important one that we should we should maybe spend some time unpacking. Um, you know, you look like you said at that 19th century, may, may, mainly at this sort of uh, you know, narrative of humiliation at the hands of imperial powers that China suffered for for so long, and something I think is like familiar to the point of banality to China watchers. Now, history is obviously uh, very important toward an understanding of contemporary Chinese attitudes. But um, in your book, you also urge people, like I said, to, to appreciate their own historical legacy, their own uh, privileges, as you say, uh, how it, it shapes the lens through which they view China. So w what are, do you see as the main elements of, of the Western historical experience that you think have created these kinds of distortions when they view China? What are the, 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 the chapters in, in or, or what, 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 what is, what is, where are well, the, the little, where's the lack of awareness? I certainly have yeah, ideas. Well, on this, I, so. I, the, it, yeah, you have to point out the lack of awareness, right. most of all. I mean, um, for instance, the, the century of humili humiliation, I, I think that the average uh, European, uh, you know, they don't know what you're talking about. They, mm -hmm. they, they, they completely forgot about this black chapter mm -hmm. of, European colonialism in China, whereas here it is very much a vivid thing, but we, we ignore it and we basically reduce China to, you know, an opportunity to reach a big market uh, for companies. Uh, but there is very, very little uh, intellectual curiosity towards, you know, the, the, the Chinese culture, the Chinese political system broader, you know, it's, it's, it's always simplified. For instance, the political system, we simplify it to <coughs> authoritarian human rights violators who right yeah now. but 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 also uh given the the economic success of china uh you know an effective uh way of dealing with the economy uh whereas if you're closer to china and, and you're inside it you know that there is a real problem of you know the way the chinese authorities are dealing with their economy and that there should be fundamental change but when you're really far back, you know, you think, okay, these guys, they have 10% growth, 7% growth. That's fantastic. You know, that's so, so it's, it's very simplified. It might be worth just mentioning the thing that might be a cliche by now is Susan Shirk's uh, observation when she came out with her book, China, a Fragile Superpower, mm -hmm. that when she told her, her uh, American friends the title of her book, they, they said, fragile? <laughs> yeah, exactly. well, how, how is it fragile? And when yeah. she told her Chinese friends the title, they said, superpower? We a superpower? No. <laughs> so, right. I mean, Although that, it would be very different now. It would be very different now. I think if you were to talk to people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, right now the narrative is about Chinese fragility. You look look at the, the the papers; they're full of stories about the crack up, about you know the, the economic disorder. Oh, you're in the West, that there is a, a mention. That's of right, but no, and also if you talk to Chinese now, well, they always about, had that. That's the point. They always thought of themselves as fragile. No, no, I'm talking but, about I'm talking about in the West. The narrative is about oh, that's what okay. uh, yeah, you know, right. economic decline in China, right. about mm -hmm. the end of this period of growth. You know, I mean, yes, Gordon right, Chang yes. is riding high in the saddle again, and I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of this declinist narrative now being applied to China, right. and 
conversely, uh, a, a very uh, strong sense among a lot of Chinese, if you talk to them in the wake of the, of the parade, they can now confidently pronounce, yep, superpower. <laughs> I mean, uh, so it's, it's, yes, it's, it's amazing how... it's a term how, of a new... A new uh, a new well, that, that's what's different. The that's, what's the English phrase? It's uh, right. Uh, new, uh, new form of superpower relation. A new, a new great power, major power relationship. A new form. Yeah, but you know, this is this is this formulation that basically. I mean, this is addressed directly to the this, this, the the Thucydides trap. God, that's hard. The Thucydides, the Thucydides trap. Right. You know, this idea that that a rising. Uh, power must necessarily disrupt an existing order, and right. it will lead inevitably to conflict. And you know, me, people have looked at at rising powers over the the history of of humanity since the time of you know the Peloponnesian War, right. and have I think in in most instances seen that there has been conflict. And so, I mean, yeah, this but, is but, very clearly you know yeah, intended to steer clear. I, I, I think you have to uh, consider in that case the fact that we have nuclear. Capaci- capacities on both sides, That's right. uh, That's right. and, and that makes it quite different uh, from all these uh, historic examples. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a because of this thing we mentioned the, the different the notion of Chinese exceptionalism, that the language they will tend to use. We tend to see this as a threat because, as as Kaiser said, we t- we tend to think of our trajectory as being universal. That these the values that we're moving towards, China says no. You know, we're we're exceptional, and that makes it very easy for them to say. No, there's no conflict here. There's no Thucydides trap. This is a win-win situation. We respect each other. We have mutual respect. We go our way. You go your way, and there's no problem. We just do what we can do in in, in conjunction with right. each other, right? Different ideas of modernity, different yeah, paths to right. modernity. But do you think? But do you think the problem is that the, the we hear that in the West, but but nobody buys it. Well, I mean, if, 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 <laughs> do, I mean, it can is it reasonable to buy it, or are they just being duplicitous? They they actually do want the same thing we do, which is. Well, become I, the next big big superpower, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 a bit difficult to uh, state that there is no conflict if you look at the Pacific, where, right. I mean, there is clearly a conflict of interest. I mean, the, 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 the question China is right. the South China Sea, East China Sea. The, the, the big question is how can you solve it? And China is trying to solve it by changing the facts on the ground uh, silently while uh, stating there is a peaceful rise. But I think that that's not a very clever strategy if you look at the reaction of neighboring countries who who seek right. their uh, military alliance with uh, with the US more and more do you believe they see it differently really or do you think they're just lying I mean they they, they claim they see they who can really they, second they, guess yeah. that I don't know I, I mean it's a serious question do you think that they really believe their historical account of of, of Chinese terror the, the, well I mean the cow tongue do they really do they really believe that or not do you think I, I think it's it's just a very big power seeking more power in the world, and, and I think that, that that is the way you have to analyze it. Um, and then there is, of course, a lot of rhetoric. I mean, if you listen to Xi Jinping in the United Nations, you know, it's it's all peaceful and coexistence and and right. and, and very nice. But I mean, that's diplomacy. Right. So when, on, on the subject of history, I mean, there's there's an idea that's been really kind of formulating in in my mind for for quite some time um i'm also in the business of trying to explain uh, or not, not not to explain so much as to urge people toward a more informed empathy about trying to, to be able to put yourself in those shoes and you know as as you as somebody who who uh, holds western values i i very much do i'm you know as much a creature of the enlightenment as uh you know a, a, a non 
uh, Asian American is a white American. I, we, we're, I, I embrace those values. I, I like you know secular democracy. Uh, I like all the values of the Enlightenment. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, the 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 thing about empathy as a position is that you do not need to abdicate those values in order to understand how somebody else may may see the world. That's that's the, the great thing. I, I do do not. Do not abate or surrender those values that I hold so dearly. When I when I do that, it doesn't and, collapse into relativism. Right, it doesn't collapse immediately into relativism. So, uh, but one thing that, that that's become more and more obvious to me is that it's not just a lack of understanding on the part of Europeans and, and North Americans about China's history. It's a lack of understanding of their own history. I think that that, that what people forget. What they, they, they fail to recognize is the extent to which the values that we all hold are the product of an historic historical process that is not universal, that is actually very quite quite particular, that only happened in that one far western jagged little peninsula sticking off the Eurasian landmass and only happened in certain countries of that. I mean, it didn't happen in the Iberian Peninsula. It only it happened in France and in England and in the Netherlands and uh, you know, it, no, no, not Greece. It didn't happen. I mean, it, it, it didn't. Ha- it happened only in, a, in mostly in the Protestant. Yeah, right. I'm talking about the Enlightenment. I'm talking about the Reformation, and you know, I'm okay. talking about what what happened. But you're not talking about human rights here. I, I'm not. I, I ultimately am. I ultimately am because human rights. You know, when was when when what did the Declaration of the Rights of Man come out? I mean, that this this was something that very much was a product of the Enlightenment, and also the pro- now it happens that I I think that those values ultimately should be I have a normative field should be should be universally and, and they have uh, an appeal uh, universal I do believe that they no. they 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 do, but uh, as to how to get there, mm-hmm. we have to understand that you know we have come in the West, and this is this is really what I'm I'm getting to. We have come in the West to you know, hold even more closely this idea that there is a goal-directed history. It's, it's like the way that a lot of people think about evolution. Uh, we're, we're, we're not clear on the concept. We think that, you know, eyes, for example, were in, in inevitable uh, evolutionary right. development, that they ought to have been that way. No, that's not how evolution works. That's not how history works. There isn't a t- in, in inherent teleology. teleology. There isn't mm-hmm. a goal-directedness mm-hmm. baked into it, I think. Think rather, uh, we stumbled on something through uh, a, a lot of historical, you know, difficulties and 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 a lot of blood left on 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 the road to this. But um, there are a lot of different roads that that could have been chosen. The one that 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 the West walked ended up in a terrific place. I mean, I think uh, with a very very a great set of values, great set of political institutions, a great set of of economic ideas. Uh, but these are not the norm for the entire world and. To expect that the rest of the world can now cross that historical chasm with great ease is just simply unrealistic. And we need to, to think about getting from A to B and not, you know, I mean, you know, in, 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 in a way that doesn't leave a lot of blood on the road. Yeah. I mean, it's for sure that, uh, for instance, the concept of democracy is not bought everywhere. For, uh, if, if you take Iraq, uh, the U.S. has tried to impose it. It didn't work. Uh, at the same time, I think there is this universal appeal. If you ask a, a Chinese peasant if whether he wants democracy, I mean, there's so much propaganda against democracy that he probably would say no. But if you ask him, you know, do you want to have a say about uh, what is going on in your village? Uh, he would say yes. So which 
right. comes, so which is the, right, which, which comes which down to democracy. Yeah, I was, you know, I was looking through your the index to your or the chapters for your book, and then just out of curiosity, I was looking through the index of a book by Zhang Weiwei, which I know Kaiser hates, but he's this <laughs> strident nationalist writer. You know, writes uh, in English. I mean, he's published in, translated into English. I was looking at his index, and whereas hates not not a sufficient word. Hates um, not a loathes despises. <laughs> anyway, um, and and to to, to see. How, what kinds of framing or what kind of focus is, is in the index, it's all on what I think was the Chinese more interested in, not human rights, but on GDP, on development, on bringing people out of poverty, on mm. economic success, on economic progress. False dichotomy. False dichotomy, but that is their focus, right? If, if, you, if you mention human rights, they will mention we brought 500 million people out of poverty, right? Absolutely. Is that, yeah. But that's a valid, uh, at least that's a valid, uh, it may not be uh, binary that one can't come without the other. But still, it's a, it's at this stage it's of a, historical development, it's a valid p- point. It's right? it's a very valid point. I mean, and and I think there is not maybe not enough recognition of that in 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 Western countries. You know that that if you look at who has contributed most towards fighting poverty in the world, that that is for sure it's China. Right. You take China out of the equation, the poverty levels remain flat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> almost. Yes, yeah. yes. So so um, I totally agree with that. But then. Uh, social, economic, human rights, as you, you mentioned, are, are very important. But it wouldn't mean that the political and the individual rights are not important. So, and I think this is kind of the nub of your book. Like, I mean, if I may, just like, uh, uh, maybe I'm I'm wrong, but I think that you see like a a, a, a dyad between, on the one hand, a kind of relativist approach. Uh, there, there are people that you talk to, you know, like Schmidt, for example, uh, and then uh, uh, somebody else who is quite kind of a universalist. And your inner dialogue through this book is about how do we engage China on the issue of human rights. That's all, that's a lot of a lot of what you, you end up talking about. I mean, where you seem to be most conflicted in the book is in this, right? Well, where where I'm. Uh, still struggling with, and, and as we uh, all w- ought to be, w- right. w- which I think is is, is is also you know from an analytical point of view very different, difficult to 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 come up with some kind of uh, solution is this point, and um, well if if you take it to the political level, we have these politicians who go to China, uh, European politicians, they they express things about human rights behind closed curtains. That's what they tell us. And we have to believe them. But um, we never see any results. The other way around, if, if they do it openly and you know the Chinese lose face, it, it might have an adverse impact on, for instance, cases of political prisoners they come up for. Uh, as um, you know, Chinese authorities really don't like uh, losing face in, mm. in, in public. So, so what is the right approach? You know, what's the right yardstick? What's the right measurement? I mean, is it efficacy? Is it is it what actually changes, or is it it you know uh, being consistent with our own values? Which which is more important, or is this again a false dichotomy? Well, you know? I, I think being consistent with your own values is is really important. You you now have an opposition in Europe between Angela Merkel. Mm-hmm. And David Cameron. That's right. Uh, David Cameron comes to China. He doesn't mention. He's rights embarrassing, right? At I mean, all. Right. 
And, and, and Angela Merkel. Mark Zuckerman of England. Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> I'm sorry, Zuckerberg. I'm glad I got his name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and Angela Merkel, I mean, she's, she's consistent with herself, you know, with her uh, East German past. She's from the and, East, right. And, huh? and she's very much convinced about the importance of human rights. And despite all the importance Germany attached to good economic relations with China, she always makes remarks about it. And yet, efficacy for me seems like a, a, a very important measure. I, 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 I think that um, you know it's one thing to you know be able to pat yourself on the back and say you know I stood up that I you know I, I, I can look the the satisfying purity of indignation. That's what Obama called it. It's uh, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's 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 a it's it's there is something you know. But you know if if browbeating if that approach yields no results or uses yields counter you know counterproductive uh, uh, Im- Im- impact uh, is that the right thing I mean, can we continue to do this it's just absolutely not I, I think you have to do it cleverly I, I spoke to a very left-wing green politician uh, in Germany and and she she was very irritated by fellow politicians who just had these declarations about human rights in China all the time you know, where she knew that the, uh, because she knew something about China, that she knew that the effect on the, the people in prison was adverse. So you, it, it, was, it reflected good on the, on the politician, but not on the, right. on the prisoner. Yeah, you use Ai Weiwei throughout the book as just sort of an example of one, one approach. Although it's interesting to see how he has moderated recently, if you've, if you've seen. Uh, yeah, I suspect some kind of deal is struck. There, I don't know why something happened behind <laughs> the scenes. I believe. Yeah, I, 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 I don't really know no, what, no, what no, happened. I, I have a, just a quick question that I don't want to get forget about. As a journalist, it seems like there's there's a problem. A lot of what we're talking about is is the domain of academia. These are things you write books about that are large in scope, historical scope. But as a journalist, you're dealing with isolated cases. You're dealing with uh, maybe even just incidents uh, that are only of current events interest. You tell a story that's supposed to be mostly, you know, factual. And get the story, get the story out. There isn't much leeway to talk about these larger issues. How, how as a journalist, do you, or as a journalist, should push back or try to present a more nuanced narrative in the context of journalism, knowing what we know about the fact that it's a market product, for example? How do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, the the nice thing about writing this book, I was not confined to any space, and uh, I could write uh, right. one hundred twenty. Well, you're writing words. meta-journalism <laughs> here, <laughs> right, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, that gave me a, a lot of liberty and also in-depth knowledge of of uh, the subject. And uh, I think that is really important, you know, for journalists uh, to to not just to produce this small story, but try to see the bigger picture and and. Um, I think then you get some kind of quality to your journalism, which you eventually need to get this better mutual understanding, which we which we all crave for. Can you only do that by building up a body of work, article, article after article, or is there some other way to accomplish this? No, I think you have to do it that way. You have to specialize and consistently uh, devote your time to this particular subject and see it from all different angles mm. for instance i just come from korea and you know the way they look at china is again different from mm. my european perspective so 
I understand it even, you know, we're better or differently again. Is there a second book in the works now working, looking at, at Southeast Asia or, or, or other East Asian and Southeast Asian neighbors of China and how they view it? Yeah, I, I, I don't know yet, but I'm very happy that the first book is there. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the other issue that I think maybe is, um, you know, you, you start off, uh, you know, you, you, you start here uh, with asking the question about, you know, what, what should then countries like the United States do? Should their stance, their posture toward China be more assertive, be more aggressive, tougher? Uh, and in the end, you kind of conclude that no, it, 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 that kind of a, a, a more... Uh, a tough posture, a, a tough stance, you know, by the U.S. and its Western allies would only increase Chinese nationalism that would spark, you know, an actual second Cold War. Um, can you walk us through your thinking on that? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, the developments in recent years are quite negative, in my view. If you compare it to when I started the research, there was the Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao uh, era, and relations were not very good, but not very bad either. And I think due to uh, the question of the Pacific and cybersecurity, um, the whole espionage uh, thing, I mean, the tensions have increased. You see increasing frustration, uh, even uh, with Obama, who, who was quite uh, balanced uh, for a long time, but now announcing TPP. He said that uh, it, it, it was also a move, you know, not to have a world where China uh, writes the rules. Uh, so so um, the, 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 the tendency is going towards a more uh, containment of China and uh, a Cold War uh, policy. And I think, you know, I can't see any advantage of that for both parties. I mean, first of all, and, and that was also one of the reasons to write the book, is, you know, we, we have some common problems which we... We have to solve, and the chance of, for instance, solving the climate crisis is is becoming less if if you have these two blocks uh, opposing each other. And um, secondly, in the, in the in the economic uh, sphere, I think uh, there is very much, and uh, the, the inter interdependency has grown all over the years so much that that uh, you can't compare it to the Soviet Union uh, any longer. Uh, you know the Soviet Union. You could contain because uh, economically you, know, you, you, you were not, exactly not uh, right. dependent, and and now the U.S. and Europe would shoot in in their own foot in a very big way. That's right. If, if they start to contain China, and yet containment is 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 part of the language with which uh, the Chinese foreign policy, the Chinese foreign policy community, and especially the Chinese military community, sees a, a American, especially American uh, action. They they posit that there is this sort of project of liberal hegemonism this attempt to to um, to thwart China's rise in some way and I, I can't help but notice that uh, I mean again this is this is me you know stepping out of my own value perspective and 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 trying to see how Beijing sees things through its window uh, that uh, there, there have been a lot of, of essays written recently about uh, the the Chinese state and its stepped up repression. They, they look at you know this document number nine. They look at the the moves in recent years against uh, the the creep of Western values into uh, academia. They look at uh, the crackdown on NGOs and on rights lawyers and things like that. And often this is just explained uh, 
without reference to the external world, but only within the, the framework of Chinese politics, that this is a, a an increasingly paranoid, increasingly uh, insecure state, and that its fear is of its own people, where uh, I think that the way that Beijing would, would frame this, and I think that there's, it's, there's, it's not without some merit, so this argument is not without entirely without merit, that they would say, Look what's happening in in the world. There, there is this project of liberal hegemonism. It's not necessarily of the uh, the um, neoconservative stripe of of overt, you know, pre- preempt the preemption doctrine and and regime change per se. But uh, it's the left's counter to that. It's the left's uh, counterpart to that, which is. Um, you know, using NGOs, using free press, using internet freedom, using all of these uh, these tools, clipping yen bian. But but it's it but it's but it's a more sinister version of clipping yen bian that that culminates in bu clipping yen bian, like bali yen bian, things like the Arab Spring. They they would see the Arab Spring as the the culmination of this color revolutions. You know, prior to that, but I can't help but notice that between September eleventh, two thousand one, uh, and two thousand eight. There was this uh, period of a kind of of, of of very relaxed U.S.-China relations because, of course, the U.S. had enlisted China in this global war on terror, and you know it had laid off and stopped, and its focus was elsewhere. And during that time, internet censorship wasn't it was bad, but not so bad. There were you know NGOs didn't exactly flourish, but they weren't suffering you know repression either. Uh, rights lawyers were able to do some of their work there, and then you know the the Chinese human rights record wasn't wasn't so bad. Uh, I can't help but see these two things as somehow interlinked. Uh, the foreign policy environment, the, the international environment, and it's not just a matter of, of increased swagger and bellicosity on the part of Beijing uh, that, that, that stimulated this, but it's also things like you know the pivot to Asia. Mm-hmm. It's also this you know. Uh, so, I, I, yeah. Well, it's 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 a very interesting analysis. I don't know whether cause and effect is is. That's right, hard clear, to, hard to and, and, and right. I, I think if, if you want to explain um, the way the domestic situation has evolved, uh, I don't know how important this, this foreign context uh, really is. I, I, I would start uh, by the person of Xi Jinping and, and, and uh, his wish that the party will survive uh, and uh, therefore the party has to have all the ground possible and that the civil society uh, should uh, decrease and uh, become less important. I think that, that, that is, the for me, that is the starting point. And then they can find arguments in these, these uh, external developments. Mm. Uh, but uh, I, you know, to my feeling, it's, it's, it's not the, the essence of, of uh, the last uh, three years. Okay. Yeah, I, mean, uh, I think that. Uh, yeah, I would say again, Xi Jinping oh. also seem, does seem to mark. It could be a coincidence, but he came around the same time, post two thousand and eight, although a few years after that. It, it seems to me that this this has become at least increasingly marked during Xi Jinping's regime, or if that's the right word. Mm. 
Well, that's that's a, a, a wonderful topic for another an, <laughs> an, another another podcast. But uh, we're uh, coming up here on, on time. I think it's probably uh, t- let's 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 make sure that everyone knows the title of of the book once again. Uh, it, it's it's called China and the West: Hope and Fear in the Age of Asia by Foka Obema. Uh, and we want to thank you very much for taking the time to come on and now move on to our you'll stay in, and make a recommendation with us. I hope. Uh, David, what is your recommendation for the week? Yeah, uh, moving <laughs> to sort of a, a macro level from, from the messy daily political situation to the sort of uh, looking at us as a human race, I've been reading uh, lately a book called Sapiens by someone named Yuval Noah Harari. Mm-hmm. And what it is is just the history of Homo sapiens from the very beginning to the present time, very detailed, and it's an evolutionary account, obviously, and uh, taking into account the sorts of... There's been a lot of interest lately because of this... New this, discovery. This of, new discovery of the Homo Nalidi or whatever. Nalidi. And also the Homo Florensis or whatever. There's yeah. been several different types of Homo discovery. In, yeah, in Indonesia, right. And, but it's, no, it's, a very different, it's a very interesting book that goes through the, the cognitive history to show how we developed some of these cognitive capabilities and including moral and um, social uh, characteristics of our particular species I of ape. I love this kind of book. So yeah, yeah it's, this a, is, it's this a great is. book that very, uh, very much detailed, very chronological. And uh, if you're a political scientist, I think it makes an interesting reading because it tells us more about the roots of these messy sort of human behaviors that we've been talking about. Wow, great! Um, and you'll you'll make sure that you get our intern Ben the uh, the correct spelling of this That's name. That's the so problem. Right, yes. Right, right. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Foka, what do you have for us? Well, the book I would recommend is is maybe an, a bit old one, but I think for Chinese readers, still very interesting. The Circle by David Eggers, mm-hmm. uh, which I just read, and. Um, uh, a couple of months later, I stumbled across a very interesting Chinese story, which is about the social credit system. Uh, I don't know whether you know about that. Yeah, of course. I mean, we've been debating this hotly with a lot of people. Of uh, late. I mean, because, you know, our, our mutual friend, uh, Rochier, I, mean, I can't keep saying his name. Kramers. Kramers, yeah. sorry. Rochier Kramers. Um, Right, he, yeah. because because he wrote, you know, he translated that whole thing. I I think that there's been a lot of misunderstanding about what this actually is. Okay, but, but. Uh, well, as far as I understand, it, it's it's rating your behavior, uh, giving your a certain as as a uh, civilian a certain uh, number of points, and that would be then inv- important for not only your credit but also for getting right. housing, getting jobs, whatever. Uh, it's it's kind of scary and uh, uh, it gives you an idea of a, a totalitarian approach but at the same time it's interesting to see that in the west you know it's it's similar developments take place it's on, only not with the state involved but just companies well, the thing is we don't know that there's any state involvement in this we have a document that, that in, in China you mean yeah in China we, yeah. we don't know that there's any state involvement we know that there's this document and we know that there are these systems that have been implemented by Alibaba and by Tencent, which may have nothing whatsoever to do with the other. There's no no uh, there, there's no clear linkage between the two. Yeah. And okay. I, I mean, until somebody shows me evidence that there is, I, I I'm not going to assume that there is. Okay. Okay. Right. Um, but but it's it's I think it's a, it's an interesting story, and I'm going to continue to follow it closely. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the circle. 
The Circle, Dave right. Dave Eggers, is, is, right. Is Dave Eggers, who, who, a staggering nice, work nice of, reading, oh, yeah. uh, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius and uh, got a number of other novels. A brilliant writer, not kind of an uneven, but, but generally pretty, pretty enjoyable writer for me. Yeah. And, and The Circle is about sort of a dystopian social network, right? uh, a Google-like. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I, I really ought to read you that. Should. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Laboring as I do in... You the belly be the first of the reader beast. of this yeah, I should, absolutely. <laughs> no, I, it's been on my list for a long time. I don't know how I haven't gotten around to it, oh, but okay. I, I have meant to read it. Um, my recommendation, also a book. I mean, we're all going with books this time. But um, Okay, so people who listen to this podcast know that I've been working my way through the Will and Ariel Durant uh, Story of Civilization series. And now I'm on volume 10, which is so far the best one. It's called Rousseau and Revolution. Uh, this one actually won a Pulitzer for general nonfiction by, you know, for Will and Ariel Durant. Uh, everyone's parents have these, um, this, this you know, this enormous, yeah, 12, I think 12 volume set. Uh, it, it's it, it, 11 or 12 volumes, but it's, it's an amazing bit of piece of writing that, that somebody could have sustained this level of, of brilliance acro- across that many you know, millions and millions of words. Uh, it's the erudition, the the the, the 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 narrative style, the 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 verve with which this is told. Um, you know, and it, it, this one covers basically you know the salonniers, the philosophes in 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 Paris in the mid eighteenth century. You know, it covers a lot of the same ground as as chapter nine, uh, volume nine before it, which is the age of Voltaire. But this you know looks at Jean Jacques Rousseau, who I've come to have a an abiding loathing of. I really just cannot stand the man, um, or or his works. You know, uh, but it also um, you know it's it. it Great we chapters on anyway. Frederick the Great. No, no, absolutely. Uh, no, because I, I think that that Rousseau is just so important to to who we are as people. I mean, you know, the, to uh, the 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 romantic uh, response to the Enlightenment. I think is 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 in, incredibly important. But it's it's uh, it's an amazing book. Um, you know, it it, it covers uh, the whole Catholic South. It covers the Islamic East. Uh, it it looks at, of course, all the countries of the Protestant North. And um, in the whole prelude up to 1789, uh, and so you're listening to it as an audio book. I am listening to it that's, as an audio. That's book. a lot of reading of millions and millions of words, too. It is. Stefan Rudnicki. Listen to his readings of it. He's I hope just. He has a lot of supply of cough drops. He does. He, I mean, his voice is great. It's just his 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 ability to read, and I mean, you know, his pronunciations of of uh, you know a lot of different languages of French and of Spanish and of of. of are, are pretty admirable for somebody who's obviously, you know, a stolid American. But um, great one. I'm looking forward to the next one, which is The Age of Napoleon, which I, I, I hope to as well. So I, I like to read these um, in, audio, in audio, but I, I'm, uh, but also to, to have them in text so that I can kind of go back and forth between. So if it's too noisy to listen, like on the subway, uh, I can read. And if, I, if, it's, um, if I'm driving or if I'm in a, a cab, I can listen. Or if I don't want to bother my wife at night with having a light on while I'm reading. Anyway, uh, thanks, guys. Thanks. It was a great, great, great discussion, and uh, I highly recommend the book. Um, I think I have a copy of it. It's signed to me, but maybe we can finagle another copy of it to give away to one lucky reader. If we can get you to to, to part with the one copy. Will you assent to that, Foka? <laughs> yes? yes. Okay, good. Very good. So then we will. We'll. I'll, I'll announce some kind of contest-like device whereby we will reward somebody with, with a copy of this book. 
Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care.